welcome to Season 9 of the Lit and Lucid Podcast. Here are your hosts, Lucy and Jared. Welcome everybody to the Lit and Lucid Podcast. We are here recording another episode of the show. Today we have a very special guest on. His name is Edward Weidenfeld. He is the co-founder of Fido Management as well as District Cannabis in Washington, D.C. and Maryland. Edward um, has a previous background of being a successful D.C. attorney, serving as a senior advisor to six U.S. presidents. He was also the general counsel to Reagan's 1980 campaign. And today, um, after being diagnosed with Parkinson's over nine years ago, he decided to shift to a more holistic approach, utilizing medical marijuana to help combat his tremor relief. It was very important to him that he needed a clean cannabis product to help protect his compromised immune system. And I think that's probably, you know, the inspiration that started Edward into creating this Fido Management Group, which is a cultivation. They have eight licenses in D.C. They sell and grow medical cannabis to various dispensaries in the district. And he is also the face of cannabis reform in D.C. and Maryland. Um, So, Edward, I know you have an amazing background and lots of experience here in the political realm, you know, being Reagan's um, general counsel in 1980, you know, with the war on drugs and the Just Say No program. And so I think it'll be very interesting for our listeners to hear kind of, you know, how you are into legal cannabis today. Um, So with that, thank you, Edward, for being here on the show. Um, Just a warm welcome here from Denver. Well, thank you. And regards and the hope that when the new normal resumes and tourists tourists again come to Washington, you'll come and visit us and try some district cannabis products. But you, you didn't ask for our bread you asked how I got into this business, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> well, I'm coming. I'm, Man, I'm there. I'll be the first one out there. You don't have to ask us twice. <laughs> well, I'll look forward. Yeah. Maybe you'll drive. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to. That might be the only way. Ed. <laughs> let's let's kind but, of let's jump back though. Let's. Let's talk about your background first, just kind of set the stage, because I think you do have a very interesting background and a very accomplished background, and to find you in cannabis is is interesting, and um, we're going to talk about that transition, but take us back to, um, you know, a few years back, well, when you're working with Ronald Reagan and the Department I did of- have the honor of working with Ronald Reagan, but I think Lucy exaggerated my importance a bit (laughs) in in Washington titles oftentimes mean more than money in the non-cannabis world. (laughs) That's enlightening of its own. But I don't want to overstate it. In Washington, money still is unfortunately polluting our 
political system, but that's a, another more detailed topic. I was counsel to the Reagan 1980 campaign. After the campaign, I worked in the White House in the personnel office, selecting the people or recommending the people to visit and he appointed to fill legal positions in the administration. I was, the way the White House is organized, very few of the advisors really work in the White House. They work in the building next door called the Executive Office Building. And there were a group in the Executive Office Building called the Administration. They were the face or the tip of the spear, if you will, of the war on drugs. I never opposed them publicly, but privately I never really was one of the active voices for drug reform. I had my own portfolio of responsibilities. I knew the president primarily cared about the war on drugs because Mrs. Reagan, in looking for a project, and there is something of a tradition of first ladies looking for a project to answer some need of the, the country. Barbara Bush had her reading program. Betty Ford had the Equal Rights Amendment. Mrs. Johnson had park beautification. Nancy Reagan decided on just say no. And suddenly a war on drugs became a nuclear battle in order to keep Mrs. Reagan's attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting that um, that first ladies kind of have a project. So you're telling me that that it was kind of a, it was Nancy Reagan really that pushed the whole drug reform maybe more than Ronald? Is that what you're saying? From my vantage point, that's how it appeared. And... I'm not saying it began with Nancy Reagan. Richard Nixon and the social upheaval of the 60s 
led to a revival of the drug enforcement, or I guess the establishment of the drug enforcement administration. Mm-hmm. But the juice, I will always believe, came from Mrs. Reagan. Somebody's got to be the front person, <laughs> the front lady, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, and then how and how has that affected you today? I mean, you said that, you know, behind the scenes, maybe you weren't so much an advocate alongside them of drug reform. Um, did that kind of affect your relationships within the government at the time? Or did you just kind of keep quiet until recently? I never brought the subject up. I am a child of the 60s. In addition to Columbia Law School in New York, I attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which was a campus where you could get beer in the student union and weed as not a regular campus varietal, but if you set out to find some, you probably would. (laughs) So it was not an anti-weed sentiment that changed. It was a respect for law that limited my personal exposure. And that's probably enough said on that subject. (laughs) So then, you know, when you were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, was cannabis something that, you know, automatically came to your mind as something that can help you? Or, you know, was it through research or what happened? First, if you know about Parkinson's, and it sounds like you do, you understand that is the loss of the cells that transmit instructions from the brain to the organ that's functioning Mm -hmm. and I was convinced that there was somewhere research that probably couldn't cure but maybe they'll protect it and slow the process down I researched this both by going everywhere from the Georgetown Hospital down the street to Muhammad Ali Clinic and Muhammad Ali's physician to the Columbia University. It was 
a serious and continuing search for information, and I came across a piece writing about the work of a Dr. Meshulam, mm -hmm. who was in Israel and showing very positive results with the use of cannabis. So as Lucy said in the introduction, I asked my neurologist, and the answer was, you can do it if you know that you're not putting an additional burden on your immune system to accelerate the progress of the disease. Mm -hmm. And did you have I, a problem at that time finding clean cannabis? Is still a problem <laughs> when you walk into the unlicensed world. Absolutely. Witness the vape crisis problem. But funny how what appears to be a crisis diminishes greatly when you have a real crisis to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that that spoke loads of, uh, you know, I guess goodness for uh, legal cannabis companies. I mean, it essentially just said, why wouldn't you have legalized cannabis? That's what the vape crisis showed me and a lot of other folks, I feel like. It showed me and then we'll get back to the original topic. But it showed me that there's a one disregard for the public. I knew there was a disregard for the cannabis business, or they would have passed the banking bill instead of letting people walk the streets with pockets full of cash because they can't establish banking relationships. Yep. <laughs> but I didn't realize that the callous disregard extended to the cannabis consumer and back to my neurologist, when I asked him, how would I know it was pure? He said, I'll tell you two ways you can tell you should avoid. Don't buy from a friend of a friend and if the strain Ask what the strain is, and if they say it's Acapulco Gold, forget about it. <laughs> so I knew that I could try cannabis, but I was going to have to really find a seller or a grower 
that I could trust. And I turned, I have two sons. I turned to them and said, where do I get the very best cannabis in the sense of purity, cultivation practices, caring about the patient, and through a process of talking to their friends, I ended up meeting a fellow who was originally from, from Washington, D.C., had gone to the had studied agriculture, gotten a business degree, run a farm, and then went out to California to work his way up and become a master cultivator. A fellow who cares about cannabis passionately as only a real farmer, I should say with a farmer's work ethic and the laboratory of the most sophisticated scientist has become a wonderful friend as well as a business partner. Andrash Kirshner, and for a period of years, I bought the cameras from Andras, knew where it came from, knew the growing practices, mm -hmm. learned about the collaborative nature. Remember, I come from a culture that's adversarial. This, for the most part, is a collaborative culture. Mm -hmm. I became more intrigued. Andras had won a license in Washington, D.C., but the financing fell through and the license was gonna be lost. And the next thing I knew we were business partners and I was in the cannabis business, but looking at the participation in the business as the work that I was meant to do. I love that, Edward. Um, Jared and I have a, a passion for clean cannabis as well. Um, one of our passion projects is we work with a nonprofit called the Cannabis Certification Council, and they run a social media campaign called What's in My Weed? And it's just asking consumers, you know, ask these questions of your cultivator, like what kind of inputs were you know, grown with your cannabis? Where did your cannabis come from? Who is the cultivator? What did he use to grow with? 
Um, all of those things are very important, especially, you know, when you're utilizing it as medical benefits, you want to make sure it's as clean as possible. Uh, so I love that, you know, that's really where your passion for cannabis started. And I love that. I believe your business partner, he had a background in like sustainable agriculture. And so that's really great to hear that you guys are pursuing those options and cultivating with passion and clean cannabis uh, out in D.C. I, I love that. And I would love to know more about this organization because clean consistent dosage, which means consistent growing practices and sustainable practices produce a better flower. And it all begins with a flower. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something really that that sometimes gets lost in all of this and you know there's a focus on the recreational market and and such but people can't forget that the reason that a lot of this is legal today is for medicinal purposes and um, a lot of the folks who even consume whether whether that be recreation recreationally or on the medicinal side a lot of the folks are still consuming for medicinal purposes and so like edward mentioned like his doctor mentioned to him you know you can try it as long as it's not going to cause uh exasperating effects down the line and that's something that we really have to get back to heart and think that, you know, the, the stuff we're putting in our body can't be doing more harm than good and has to be a balance and, and kind of on the positive end of things. So, you know, what... recreational should be no less pure. Recreational reminds me of a judge that used to be well-known in Washington until he got convicted. But they used to say he could fix anything but a broken heart. <laughs> well, cannabis, after centuries of use, has very few stories that turned out to be true about the harms of cannabis. So even though finding one that meets your specific symptoms may require a period of trial and error, at least you're experiencing some relaxation and some freedom from the strains and stresses that are behind every mask I see on the street. <laughs> Absolutely. And so is that kind of how district cannabis emerged or so is district cannabis, the actual dispensary and then phytomanagement is the cultivation or how does that all work? It all works. By serendipity <laughs> and chance. Yes, sir. That's, we started out Fido, had a logo designed, and then someone said to me, we got to trademark this. And the trademark lawyer proving 
the old line that if you represent yourself, you have a fool for a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, you'll never be able to trademark a name like Fido, which describes a part of the photosynthesis process, come up with another name. <laughs> Darn lawyers. <laughs> And after knocking around several names, we decided District Cannabis had a meeting beyond our location, but also had a meeting in Maryland where we were then in litigation for our license. And in the district, and was, we thought, or we were advised by the lawyer, should receive a trademark. And so, although Fido and Maryland cultivation and processors are held by different or have different investors, they've signed an agreement that they're both going to use the brand and both companies will derive the synergy of adjacent market name identification. And district cannabis, is it just medical cannabis in D.C. or recreational as well? D.C. And we've walked around the edges of the government swamp. This time we have to walk more into it. D.C. has legally passed recreational or adult use, I think is the term that's used. But Congress has, as a federal territory, Congress has to approve any action. It's Congress is the adult supervision for a group of citizens who are perfectly capable of taking care of themselves, but have Congress acting in loco parenti or Latin as in place of the parents, and they've never allowed implementation. Congress, more specifically, one member of Congress has consistently blocked the attempts to go recreational or adult use, which also denies the district the economic benefits that come from this emerging industry. Along with holding back the medical and the social benefits. Not to mention 
the financial penalties were not included. In fact, the cannabis industry, as you're probably aware, is specifically excluded from any of the coronavirus relief. The cannabis industry is subject to a tax law that is called 280E of the Internal Revenue Code, which basically taxes any profits you're lucky enough to make at the standard tax rate plus 40%. Yeah, how can you run a business on that? That's your margin right there. You got to work damn hard. Yeah. Pete Cadence, who was the former president of TTI, which is, from all that I can see, a well-run multi-state organization, said the rule that you can never forget with cannabis, everything costs more and takes longer, and you just have to build it into your projections. Yeah. Well, Edward, this has been fascinating. I love talking to you and hearing about your background and how you have a passion for the plant now and how it's helping you medicinally. Uh, why don't we just end this show, which is some advice you have for young entrepreneurs looking to enter into this field. What would you offer to them? First, follow your passion. This is an unusual moment in history. And I believe people who follow their passion are more likely to have a clarity than people who follow something more ephemeral and if it if your interests take you in the direction of cannabis like the judge i referred to it can fix well it can't fix anything but a broken heart but it can certainly ease the pain and anxiety and greatness of the day and it definitely is an anti-inflammatory a stress reliever a muscle soother a mental relaxant and that's and on top of it it is going to be an industry you can make money in. I wouldn't enter the industry for the profits, but if you're dedicated, patient, diligent, the rewards are there. Absolutely. That's, those are the key words right there. Patience and diligence. Which requires a commitment greater than 
driving to work every day, wondering what you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, we could talk all day about that. That's, <laughs> I, I feel you there. I had to quit my day job to pursue my daydream already. So I had enough of those driving to works and those 20 minute drives to works wondering why am I doing this? I could do this for myself and, I, and I'm still in the works, but patience and diligence. I'm, I'm at the patience and diligence stage still. <laughs> One aspect, you may as well give yourself a little commercial and be a little insight. What aspect of the business are you interested in? Uh, so I do, uh, we run a marketing agency for the cannabis industry. So we do do all things marketing. That's gonna be a key element of the business that's only beginning to be understood and explored by the independent segment of the industry. Yep, no, you're exactly right, Edward, and that's why that's why I quit my job. I saw that and said, well, somebody's somebody will need our help someday. And I've been doing it for 18 months now. And now we're we're about in over our ears, <laughs> which is great. Uh, so, yeah, people are coming around to it. And uh, there's avenues actually to market and advertise starting to open up. So it's, it's looking good. Denver is by reputation a very... Not only legal cannabis, but really a cannabis-friendly city. So it should be a base of operation in a state that so far has a reputation for doing things right. They do, yeah. Yeah, no, Denver does a great job, and I think they're, they try to really be that leader and try to stand out front and even now, I know uh, we're pretty heavily involved with the cannabis industry here, and there's still, you know, next waves of things coming down the pipeline, delivery, and, um, you know, hemp's a new thing now, CBD's a new thing. Uh, so there's a lot of new avenues, and I know the Colorado the Colorado crew is definitely holding it down in the cannabis industry and, and trying to steer it in the right direction. So, uh, yeah, we're blessed to live right in the center of the epicenter of the cannabis, cannabis world. Well, I wish you good luck. And... I I really hope we get a chance to meet. I'd love to show you what we have and our branding. We think I'm we're, we vacillate between being in love with our branding and wondering, no matter how good it seems whether we're a tree falling in a forest that no one can hear. But I think that's the nature of branding. Like the diligence of the individual worker, the diligence and commitment to stick with a plan is the only way you ever find out if it works. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it sounds like you guys are putting the effort and the time and energy into your product. And at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be your product that'll help build your brand more than anything. So keep heading down the road. You're heading down. Uh, if you produce a good product, which it looks like you guys do, you produce an excellent product. Uh, the brand will build itself.
Oh, you've given me something to take to my partner because that's certainly our view. But there's there's a time when you need a Jared to build on a reputation among. Right now, we're we're very well known and regarded among the connoisseur, but as you know, that's there are very few really OG connoisseurs, and we've got the influencers. The problem is. The product is so good, they only want to talk big talk. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been a pleasure, and I thank you for the opportunity and the patience to put up with the slowness between phrases it's really, and then I'll let you pull the plug, but it's really a strange feeling to know what I'm, what's going to come out of my mouth about 30 seconds. It's not 30 seconds, but a few seconds ahead of what it actually does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to... Uh you know, to, to talk and then talk about it really, because especially in your position, I mean, not a lot of folks understand it. And I have a background in uh, neuroscience and study neuroscience in college, and it's still something that's very elusive even to researchers. So I think what you were doing is, is incredibly brave for one. You're incredibly brave, Edward. Um, and it's incredibly insightful too, because to be able to be building something to help yourself while going through something as difficult as Parkinson's can be, speak measures to a, the, the man you are and the character you have. And, and really, I think you'll be an inspiration to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways today and in the future, um, whether that be policymakers, regulators, or, you know, somebody else with Parkinson's or somebody who has been newly diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, I think what you're doing is, is incredible. So we, I mean, we appreciate having you Edward on, appreciate your patience and, um, you know, you doing everything you're doing uh, to help, to help usher in the new era, the new normal. Well, I wasn't ready for quite such an abrupt change. <laughs> yeah. But I think we'll all adapt. I'm just concerned that we're flying in the face of science with the current schedule they're talking about for the social separation but I'm hopeful that at least the three of us and the people who listen to the podcast have the common sense to avoid unnecessary exposure because this disease appears to be cyclic in nature and likely to come back 
with a roar. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's some great, great tidbit there. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Edward, for being on the show and sharing your background and your passion for cannabis. We appreciate you as an advocate in D.C., and you will be at the top of our list when we make our way out there, um, and we will let you know. But thank you again for being on the show, and we appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy, and thank you, Jared. (laughs) Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, you guys, with that, I'm lit. I'm lucid. And that's it. Laters. Bye.